Listening Dog Media. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. I'm Sam Keir, host of Hitman for Hire, a year in the life of a franchise cricketer. For the past 12 months, I've been talking to T20 star David Visa, getting his take from behind the scenes at the IPL, the 100 and the rest of the world's biggest leagues. That's the don't view system, deal. There's no <laughs> ways in my mind that was up. These guys don't know how to win at this stage. He had his driver pick him up in his Bentley. People start chanting your name. You kind of have to pinch yourself. Hitman for Hire, a year in the life of a franchise cricketer. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Sport Social. Hello, this is the Offside Rule World Cup Daily with Sky Sports. I'm Kate Borsay. I'm rubbing my hands together because it's time for our semi-final preview show as England prepare to take on co-hosts Australia and Spain face Sweden. Today I'm with Lindsay Hooper. Hi, Linz. Hi, Kate. I'm bringing my best semi-final optimism to this show. (laughs) And we're delighted to be joined by Jodie Taylor, who played for England in the last two World Cups, picking up a bronze medal in Canada. She was the top goal scorer at Euro 2017, and she's been a striker for top clubs across six different countries, including England, Australia and Sweden. We're just missing Spain, Jodie, aren't we there? (laughs) Yes, one missing. One miss, and I think I need to tick that off, don't I? Um, (laughs) Let's get into the preview then, shall we? Both of you starting with England against Australia. So the Lionesses face Australia in Sydney on Wednesday. The chance for England to reach their first ever World Cup final after making the last two semi-finals. I didn't say it. I feel like it's like saying Macbeth at a theatre or something. Uh, let's give you both a <laughs> quick reminder. Yeah. yeah, let's give you yeah. both a quick reminder on how each team got to this point. So for England, there were group stage wins against Haiti, Denmark and China. Nigeria in the round of 16 was a nervy affair, but England won on penalties. They then advanced to the semis after a 2-1 win over Colombia. For Australia, they won their group stage games against Republic of Ireland and Canada, but they lost to Nigeria. Their knockout wins against Denmark and France, which went to that insane 20 penalty shootout. I've only just about recovered, Jodie. I don't know about you. England... Uh, Coming up against Australia, one thing that's important to remember, and I'm sure the Australians will take confidence from this, they're the only team that's beaten England under Serena Wiegmann. Plus, they've got that huge home support. Tell us about what you're anticipating with this one. It's going to be a great game, isn't it? It's a shame I I wanted this as the final. From my experience, playing against host nation is just difficult. There's just so much more energy. You talk about the 12th player and and it exists just the energy you get from being at home in front of your people your friends your family I, I remember that at the Euros against um the Netherlands and you, know, you get to this point tired legs and it is it's just this surge of energy that that the host nation just have yeah I think England have been in this situation we have been there time and time again as well and know what to expect um, it, it's gonna be such a good game I actually can't wait to watch Uh, Jodie, let's get into the game, shall we, and talk about how you think England are going to set up. Do we think we'll see Ella Toon in there? One criticism is that England have lacked creativity. That would be a job for Jordan Nobbs. I just just wonder whether there will be any change or whether we're being a a bit naive there, really. 
I think a little naive, yeah. You know, I Thanks. think changing to a three-five-two, I think, has helped the lionesses massively. I think we saw a spark that was missing. Um, you know, when you think about the the, the build-up games, the World Cup, not not creating that much, not quite getting the results that we're used to seeing, and the first couple games in the um, group stages too. I think that the change of formation has helped. I can't see much changing now. I think it's quite bold to to start a Jordan Nobbs or someone else who hasn't really featured mm. in the tournament so far. I just can't see it changing much. Of course, mm. Lauren James would, would be playing if, if she wasn't banned, which is a huge loss for the Lionesses and, and a player that we're really starting to rely on in this tournament. But that's football. How do England then create more with the same formation? Where does it come from? Yeah, you know what? The key for me is Lucy Bronze, Rachel Daly as wing backs in those half spaces to drag out full backs because I think we we've seen it at, in moments where it works really well. Then you've got Russo running the channel, Hemp running the channel, which they're so good at, and it's that dynamic movement dragging centre backs out of the central areas, which centre backs don't like to come out of central areas. And I think if they can do that more disrupt Australia's shape because they're very disciplined defensively Australia they've kind of you know coming into their form and, and how they're playing they're hard to break down and I think if we can drag them out of positions especially in wide areas we need movement from the forwards in the channels and I think that's what's going to be key for for England. Are they going to face a physical test do you think Linz maybe the most physical test of the tournament so far against Australia they they, they do have some gritty players we don't know how much time Sam Kerr is going to have. I don't know about the most physical because I think Nigeria showed what a test they were. And although they were tactically spot on as well and technically brilliant, I think that physically that was always going to be one of the biggest tests. And then Colombia even, I mean, they're, they're not a side that roll over by any stretch. They are very much front footed in your face. Don't give you space or time on the ball. So in a way, um, I think sometimes you look at the way a draw opens out and the way that it all comes together for the semi-finals and you look at it and you think, well, this was perfect preparation for England. I think sometimes we think, well, they haven't gone up against one of the biggest nations. We've seen a lot of them go out early doors in this tournament. But then when you look at the teams that were left and the ones that we had to go up against, I think that test has been great preparation for what's to come from Australia. One of the things that I've identified is the midfield for Australia. And I know that we'll probably talk about the defence because they have been really solid. But I, I think given that they haven't had Sam Kerr, and this could be a match where she starts for the very first time, of course, but she's only been a, a bit part player this tournament coming off the bench. I think they've coped admirably in terms of attack and the way that they've supplemented her absence with top performances. And I look at that midfield for Australia and you've got Ford and Rasso on either side with Gorry and Cooney Cross in the middle. And I'm really hard pushed, Jodie, to think of a better midfield that's performed this tournament. I think they've been sensational and stepped up. They've got goals, they've got assists. And that would be a real worry for me. And I wonder whether you think their midfield's stronger than the England midfield. Yeah, possibly. I think they've performed better this tournament. The Nigeria game for me was a huge test for the Lionesses. Player for player marking in midfield. I don't think European teams, especially Lionesses, are used to coming up against African nations and, and the likes of Colombia. We're not used to it. And I think that was a huge test. That physicality in midfield and, and getting essentially marked out of a game, not used to it at all. So I agree that I think that we've had some really good um, challenges and tests 
to this tournament. I think Australia will feel a bit more comfortable in comparison to playing Nigeria and Colombia. We, we used to playing with, with the Australian players more and, and against that type of style. It is going to be a battle in midfield, and that's why I, I do think out in wide areas is, is where the game is probably going to be won or lost. Same, same for Australia. They have a lot of pace. They're very dynamic up front too, and they can they can break quickly. So it's it's going to be a real test for for both back lines. I think a lot of those Australia players know the English players very well, and vice versa. A lot of them play together at club level. That's going to be important as well, isn't it, Jodie? Do you think Do you think Australia are going to change anything about about the way they play? We will hear from an Australian journalist shortly, so we'll kind of get the full skinny on it. But do you think Australia will change anything, just bearing in mind what England offer strength on the wing? I'm not sure they will. They've, they've built into the tournament, haven't they? And I don't know why they would change what they're doing. It's more so what will Sam Kerr start is probably the bigger question. Mm. And how do you utilise Sam? I'm impressed with how well players have stepped up. Hayley Rasso stepped up in games. Caitlin Ford had an excellent game. You know, they've had people step up in big moments to score the goals when right up until the first game, the day before the first game of the tournament, it it was Sam Kerr they were all relying on. So they're going to be so confident knowing that they've got Sam back for even more minutes. Now it's just how do they use her? Do they start her or do they bring her on? Mm. That is the question. And Mm -hmm. um, I don't suppose we'll know until the day, I suppose. Overall, it's sort of been a funny tournament for England, hasn't it, Jodie? Because they found a way to win regardless. We haven't seen the same glitz and the relentlessness that we saw during the Euros. We've had some nervy moments. I mentioned the game against Nigeria. Haiti uh, was underwhelming as a game as well. Is there an argument that England will find a way to to win this one? Or is there another gear there for them? Is there something that we're not seeing from England that they're capable of, but just hasn't, it hasn't shone through, it hasn't worked for us yet? I'm not sure. I think we saw against China, that spark was back and, and the goals we scored, it was, a, it was a great complete performance. I'm not sure we will see anything better now, but they're finding a way to win and that's what matters. It's that grit, it's that determination. I think Serena's been incredible for how she's, dealt with adversity throughout this tournament so far. I think the reality is the rest of the world are catching up. We've already seen huge upsets. We've seen Germany go out the group stages, Brazil out the group stages. US got knocked out round 16 and potentially didn't make it out the group stages. And do we call it complacency heading into a World Cup? Other teams have narrowed the gap and, it, and it's great to see. But at the end of the day, haven't had the best performances but here we are in a semi-final and you've got to applaud that. And I think that's what we've missed a little bit in the past as a national team. And it is that belief and that confidence that no matter what, you're going to win. And I think that's what we've started to see over the last couple of tournaments that that, that we're building that, the Lioness are building that. And that's, that's the exciting, positive thing for me to, to take out of this tournament. Actually, I would argue if we're going to direct this at the Lionesses, we've got to look at the other three nations that are left in these semis. and. Tactically, it was brilliant from Sweden and the way that they they managed to see see out the game with Japan. I mean, that that was brilliant, the way that they did that. And, and I guess when you go to penalty kicks, that's with USA, that's one way or the other. So I don't think that was the most comprehensive. It wasn't done in the, the 90 minutes or extra time. But I think Japan was a different model. You look at Spain and then I look at Australia. I don't think that any of them have had this run 
of matches where they've looked at their best. So I don't think we can just say that about England. So it's basically anyone's, isn't it, is what you're saying. And actually, Lindsay, it's a really good point to make as we sort of step for a for a worldwide view on these semi-finals. None of these teams have been 100% convincing. None of them have had a lightning tournament, have they? Which means everything's to play for. And that is super exciting and entertaining. We know we're going to get some great semi-finals. Uh, let's get the Australia perspective then, shall we? Uh, we caught up with Angela Christian-Wilkes, who's co-host of ESPN Australia's The Far Post podcast. Thanks so much for joining us, Angela. Uh, live from Sydney at the moment, uh, I wonder what the buzz is there. This is, you know, a really exceptional point for a host to be at during a World Cup. Very exciting for Australia. How's everyone feeling over there and how's everyone interacting with this World Cup? Has fever struck over there? Fever has very much struck. The experience of that quarterfinal against France was surreal I don't know I've, I've very much been involved in women's football and around women's football for quite a while but the the reach that this had this and the impact and the amount of people that were tuning in from so many different places around Australia was just unprecedented is a word that people use a lot but it really felt unprecedented and there was also of course the historic moment of making the semi-finals for the first time and on home soil as well so the vibes are immaculate. They're very, very good <laughs> at the moment. Let's talk about Sam Kerr and whether she's fit enough to be a real threat to England in this game. I don't think Sam Kerr will start in this game. Just the, the lack of minutes that she's had so far, I don't think there's the expectation that she'd be playing 90 minutes. And for a game like this, where there's also the possibility of additional like extra time but she's also a player that you can put on and she will work some magic and she can really change a game tony talks a lot about game changes but even if she is utilized later on in the game i think that will have an impact how do you think then tony gustafson's going to set up to try and counteract england sam kerr aside i suppose if we put if we put her to one side I expect we'll probably see what we've seen so far this tournament in that he will play the 4-4-2 and have a, the same starting 11 or a very similar starting 11 to what we saw against France and in the group stages as well. Uh, in this tournament, there seems to have been some reluctance from Tony to dig deep into the bench, which has been... An interesting thing to observe, I suppose, because, again, I mentioned he's very much endorsed this concept of game changers and, and people you can put on to transform a game or, or get the result that you need. But in practice, that hasn't always been the case. And uh, Matilda's fans, even though we're you know buzzing high, we still need to remember that the game against Nigeria where that really became an issue. And also there's the fact that the game against France it went to extra time. There'll be sore legs. Tactically, we're going to see some really exciting matchups. Um, if Rachel Daly starts as she has, that'll be really exciting against Ellie Carpenter, Lucy Bronze and Steph Catley, like two of the world's best. Kyra Cooney-Cross has been a revelation for many at this tournament. And how hasn't she? Gory, qualify yeah. someone like Kira Walsh, I think will be really exciting. So I don't think there's too much that he needs to change at this point in time, but how he utilizes minutes and manages loading will be 
probably the trickier thing. And I feel like that's very much for the sports scientists. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, thanks so much for speaking to us. Angela Christian Wilkes, co-host of the ESPN Australia's The Far Post podcast. Good to speak to you. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, okay, well, now let's move on to the other semi-final. Spain are up against Sweden. This is Jodie Taylor, and you're listening to the Offside Rule World Cup Daily with Sky Sports. So Spain plays Sweden on Tuesday in Auckland and what will be the last match of the World Cup in New Zealand. Here's a quick reminder on how each team got to this point. So Sweden have won every game at this World Cup, beating South Africa, Italy and Argentina in the group stages. Then followed a round of 16 win against the USA that went to penalties and a 2-1 win against Japan to get them to the semis. For Spain, there were group stage wins against Costa Rica and Zambia, but a heavy loss to Japan. There followed wins against Switzerland and the Netherlands to earn Spain a semi-final against Sweden. Well, Dazone women's football reporter Alex Ibatheta is with us to discuss this one. Hi, Alex. Thanks for being with us. Should we talk more wholly about both sides to start with, of course, with your Spain focus as well? Where do you think Spain are going to threaten Sweden the most? Yeah, I think Spain have obviously showed their strength in attack, particularly the midfield going forwards. When you look at the the attack of Spain, you obviously have Alexia to start with. That is kind of <laughs> the best best name in, in any squad right now. Um, Aitana also has been playing outstanding. Teresa Bellera has been an amazing pivot. But then you have Mariona, you have Esther Gonzalez, you have Alba Redondo, you have Mariona Caldente, who have been quite strong. And you look at the way that Sweden kind of play and they play in a very defensive block they obviously play five in the back well three in the back defend with five in the back so when you look at the the spaces that they leave in the midfield you, you would think that Spain's advantage in the midfield and the attack would kind of overpower that um, but at the same time you look at the flip side and you look at Spain's weaknesses in their defense and you kind of think that potentially with the wing backs that Sweden would kind of exploit with um, with the top two it would be quite interesting but I think Spain particularly have an attack and the way that they move the ball around would be a big advantage to kind of break down the sp- Sweden's kind of low defensive block, the tiki-taka, essentially, that everyone knows. <laughs> There's no doubting Spain's talent, Jody. We know what we're going to get against Sweden. And like England, they're the only side at this World Cup who's won every single game. One thing Sweden did really well against Japan was they contained them. They stopped Japan having any creativity. They slowed the pace down in the game as well. Will, again, Sweden's predictability but assuredness cause problems for Spain? Yeah, I think so. Sweden are known for being very difficult to break down. They always have been. You know, They've had a really tough run in this tournament so far, beating the US, playing Japan, now Spain. And you know, I, I think what's got them so far has been how well that they can defend. You know, they're not, they're not the most exciting team to watch in this tournament, but they're experienced and they know what they've got to do. And I expect them to, to play a similar game as they have against um, Japan in the last game. How do they exploit then Spain's weakness in defence? Because that's what it's going to be, isn't it? Looking for opportunities here. I mean, clearly Sweden are a huge threat on set pieces. That's where a lot of their goals have come from. 
I would like to see Sweden get Blackstinius in the game more. You know, we've seen in the WSL for Arsenal how good she is on the back shoulder and on the counter. I don't think they've quite utilised her this tournament, but we know what she's capable of when there's space in behind. And for me, I think Spain are going to have a lot of the ball. Sweden will be comfortable just defending in a lower block. But I think there's moments where they can catch them on the counter. And we saw that when Spain lost to Japan how vulnerable they are on a counter. So, you know, I think that's an area that they can then really exploit them on. But but for me, it's going to be set pieces where the goals are probably going to come from for Sweden. Mm. Uh, you've absolutely forgotten Sweden's secret weapon in this tournament so far, Musevic, their goalkeeper, yeah. with the protective ring around her, which you jokingly said was the goalposts <laughs> uh, last time, uh, Lindsay. So she'll be a big part of that, of course. Let's switch focus again to Spain. Uh, we criticised them, actually, after their game against the Netherlands, Alex, for not being ruthless enough. We know about their flair and creativity, but it still feels like we're yet to see Spain go full throttle. Is that a fair comment? I think that's definitely fair. When you look at the history of both the national team and the clubs that the, most of the players play for, particularly Real Madrid and Barcelona. Spain, I think that was their downfall in the 2019 World Cup when they played against the US. Spain didn't capitalise on any opportunities that they made. And they've gotten better. They've gotten way better. Um, I think they have a lot more confidence on the attack, in particular players. Um, Alba Redondo was obviously in the gold boot race for Liga EFE, and she obviously wasn't there in the 2019 World Cup. With everything that's happened behind the scenes, I think a lot of the players are quite motivated um, to do well and a lot of the younger players are quite motivated. Um, so they will take those individual chances that potentially, you know, an older veteran player would be quite keen to kind of pass the ball instead of shooting. So you have the Salma Pariahuelo, you have Atenea del Castillo, Alba Redondo, who are quite keen to take those individual spotlights. But it is definitely fair to say that Spain are... You know, we saw it against Japan. Japan had three counterattacks and three goals and Spain were dominating the ball until then. Sweden would have the confidence to kind of go into this and be like, all we need is three counterattacks and three goals. Sweden, okay, we're going to say that they have the experience. They're the ones going into this now with the highest ranking as well into the semifinals. But you can't deny that Spain have got the talent. They've got the individuals, I think, that stand out um, when you look at this team. But it's those individuals as well, Alex, that have also questioned the management. They're the ones that have also gone and said, look, we haven't got far enough in these tournaments. We should be doing better. So when this team is on the precipice of potentially being in a final, what would that do for for Spanish football? Would it appease them as players? Would it appease the fans and the press back home reaching a final? Has reaching a semi-final already done that? I think Chris and Press summed it up quite decently. Obviously, Chris and Press is quite close with a few players playing with Daniel Mosa, Alexis Botellas. And she summed it up in the sense that if Spain win, they have a bigger voice, obviously with the whole protest and the federation and the respect that the players have individually is quite low, I think, especially in Spain. Because I've been I've been kind of torn. It's like, do you want to see a manager that doesn't deserve success be successful? In contrast to players who deserve success because of all the hard work that they've done and, and the the historical moment that they've come to reach this game, as you mentioned, you know, they've never gone past quarterfinal of a major tournament. So this is, you know, quite successful to get to the semifinal already. Once the players get more successful, they get more respect from the outside world in terms of, you know, Spain win the World Cup, for example. If they get to the final World Cup, you know, you would be like, okay, you know, they've gotten this far. Let's actually hear what they have to say from an outside perspective. So they would get kind of more, they would get more of a voice. 
Yeah, certainly. We hope so too, uh, whatever the outcome. Alex, it's been lovely to speak to you. Thank you. Best of luck uh, to both Spain and Sweden, if I'm to be fair, across the board. Uh, We'll see who makes it to the final. Alex Ibatheta, thank you so much for speaking to us. Cheers. No, thank you for having me on. Well, with this one coming up on Tuesday, it's time to pick our ones to watch. As ever, here's producer Sophie with the updated rules. This is Ones to Watch from the Offside Rule World Cup Daily with Sky Sports, the game where you predict tomorrow's top player. So pick a player, and if they score, you'll get two points. It's one for an assist and for a clean sheet if they're a defender. A goalkeeper gets two points for a clean sheet and three for a penalty save in open play. If it goes to a penalty shootout, it's one point for scoring and a keeper gets two points for a save. Oh, and minus one for a red card or an own goal. We're going to be keeping tallies throughout the tournament for Kate, Lindsay, the pundits, the producers and of course the listeners. So keep track of your scores and let us know how you're getting on. You can join in any time by starting with the same amount of points as the person in last place. So pick a player and let's get started. I'm on the lead in 28 points. The producers are close behind on 27. The pundits are in third on 15 points. And who's close behind the pundits in last place on 14 points? That'd be me. (laughs) So it's time to try and rectify this. And luckily, there are still more games to play. We're just going to focus on Spain versus Sweden and that semi-final. I would like to know, please, who are your ones to watch? Lindsay Hooper. Big time game, big time player, Alexia Pateas. I'm going in Alexia Pateas. If she gets the minute, okay. The producers are going for Aitana Bonmassi of Spain. I've gone for Zachira Musevic, Sweden's excellent protective ring goalkeeper. Jodie, what have you gone for? I'm going to go with Illestat. I think she's <gasps> been crucial for scoring goals, stopping goals. And yeah, I think she's going to get one. Amanda Illestat, loving the Arsenal connection as well there, by the way, on brand. <laughs> uh, well, before we go, you may have noticed that the indigenous place names and flags on display at grounds in Australia and New Zealand. We wanted to look more deeply here on the podcast into indigenous football culture and the potential, really, of this tournament for indigenous people. More on that next. Keep up to date with everything going on at the Women's World Cup in Australia by using the free Sky Sports app. You'll find news, interviews, live match coverage, analysis and much more. You don't have to be a Sky customer to use it. Go to your app store, download it and away you go. And after the World Cup, it's the best app for WSL coverage and so much more, including F1, the Premier League, world-class boxing, international cricket and more. Remember, you don't have to be a Sky customer to use it. Just search for Sky Sports in your app store. Well, I'm joined now by Taylor Pickering-Parker, who is one of the head coaches of the Maori Football Aotearoa Senior Women's Team. Taylor, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. Tell us, first of all, how it was leading the team against the First Nations Australian football teams recently. Yeah, um, it was a great experience overall. It's a one for the books. It's history made. Um, It's something that we haven't done with this organisation before. I think the main takeaway as the coach was to see that we had 20 Māori football players being able to showcase their uh, football talent, also connecting and building a relationship with the First Nations players and staff, um, learning a lot about their culture, um, sharing a part of our culture as well. And so to be able to connect culturally through their sport is something that is not being done before. 
Yeah, so important, isn't it? Tell us um, a bit more then about the history of Maori people in relation to football in New Zealand from where it was really to where it is now. Yeah, well, we've had quite a few Maori footballing pioneers. So the likes of Winston Rufa, Harry Ngata, uh, Maya Jackman and Amber Hearn. And most recently, one of our biggest high profile players, uh, Winston Reid. And um, those people really put Maori on the on the map in terms of um, high performance sport, and especially in football. So I suppose they've paved the way. And it's given all Maori people someone to aspire to someone that looks like them, talks like them, that has the same values. And now we see that evidently in the football firms, we've got three Māori female athletes, Grace Jarley, Paige Satchel, who have been involved with Māori football Aotearoa in their youth. Um, and then we've got Claudia Bung as well, um, representing uh, not only the country, but also Māori people on a um, global stage. So, we're definitely improving. Uh, we've definitely improving in terms of participation. Something that might not have been as big because, as you know, New Zealand or Aotearoa is a rugby and netball sport. So now that we've got Māori pioneers within the football community, it's definitely brought more of us to the sport and those that might have not been connected to their whakapapa or their culture before this is a chance for them to um, represent us on that stage so we've come a long way and we're still continuing to do that. (laughs) Your focus I know is on increasing Maori female participation and development Um, tell us about the work that you do for that and also the areas that still need improvement really from your perspective. We won't know until the end of this tournament to see how much impact that this has made on Māori people and to bring Māori participation through. And has this World Cup provided specific funding for investment in Māori football or its culture and people? How's how's the World Cup being in New Zealand really going to help with that? Yeah. Look, the World Cup tournament itself has been a great showcase of female sport and the heights of female athletes can get to when investment and opportunities exist correctly. We do know that the impact of the the legacy plan is still in negotiation at the moment between Māori football and yeah, New Zealand football as well. And it's something that still needs to be looked at deeply to make sure that it's being funded or used in the right way. New Zealand football has um, put into a proposal with us around offering that funding to youth within our in our own organisation, but it's still in negotiation because there's some important mm-hmm. factors that we have to kind of knuckle down on and those details really need to be fined out. Well, look, we wish you all the best. And uh, as you say, it is all about legacy, really, and what happens from this point. It's really important to have the showcase, but it's just as important um, to make sure that what happens after is really capitalised on, maximised on uh, for the encouragement of the game going forward. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us. Taylor Pickering-Parker from the Maori Football Aotearoa women's team. Thank you, Kate. Great stuff. Well, let's move now on from New Zealand to Australia. Well, I'm joined by Ros Moriarty, the co-founder of the Moriarty Foundation, which enables families and communities to unlock children's potential through locally led programs. They embrace the Aboriginal worldview to shift the intergenerational disadvantage. Hi, Ros. Welcome to the show. Hello, Kate. It's great to speak with you. 
Thank you so much for joining us. And Alira Toby, the Aboriginal A-League player who also sits on the Indigenous Football Australia Council. Hi to you, Alira. Hi. So lovely to have you with us. Um, Alira, let's start with you. And I wonder if you could give us a sense of what it's like to be a professional footballer as an Aboriginal person in Australia. Were there more barriers, do you think, in your way to get to where you are now? Being an Aboriginal, you know, football player in Australia, for me personally, it's very, it's a great honour and I am, I'm so proud of my culture and my background and for me personally, I think, you know, getting to where I am is purely based on my parents. My mother and father essentially grew up in poverty when they were growing up and, and they broke the cycle which has then given me the opportunity to be able to to do what I love and that's play football professionally. I think as a whole, I think there is a lot of barriers being Aboriginal within the football space in Australia and, and you know, working with the Moriarty Foundation to improve that is something that I've been passionate about for a few years now. Yeah, and I'm sure, uh, Ros, part of the Moriarty Foundation's aim really is to have more Aliras in the game. You organised a letter, didn't you, to Football Australia and FIFA criticising the lack of legacy funding for First Nations football at this World Cup. Tell us why you wrote the letter and whether you've had a response. So the letter came from Indigenous Football Australia's council, um, a council that Alira is part of, and it was in response to the release of the Legacy 23 plan. And having had a look at the plan, there was really nothing in there that we could see that related to Indigenous-led grassroots football. So we wrote to FIFA, we wrote to President Infantino and um, copied it to um, Secretary-General Fatma Samura and also to the Chief Women's Football Officer Sarai Behrman. Um, Sarai replied to us and said to us that she was pretty comfortable that Football Australia had put in place its advisory committee that was advising on protocols and cultural recognition during this Women's World Cup. The council wrote again to, um, to Ms Behrman and said to her, you know, you've mentioned to us all the symbolism and the fact that cultures in New Zealand and in Australia are being recognised and being represented. However, that really underpinned our concerns rather than allayed them, that there was a lot of symbolism, but we couldn't see any, you know, really strong support for opportunity for the thousands of Indigenous kids who come through grassroots programs. Elira, for you, I wonder if you think the World Cup has properly reflected Aboriginal culture. And also, I'd love to pick up on that legacy funding point with you as well. When we talk about where that funding needs to go from your perspective, how would it best be utilised? Because that's what you're not seeing yet, are you? You're not seeing figures put on bottom lines yet. I think FIFA as a whole in the World Cup, they have actually done a great job in representation. It's a great start. It's been positive and I'm glad that they took the steps that they did in order to represent, you know, the culture. There obviously can be more done and I think, you know, touching on the funding that we're not seeing and where it needs to go. For me personally, I I think it needs to go to grassroots and it needs to go out to, you know, rural and remote communities and further out because at the end of the day, you know, they're the ones that don't have the opportunities that we have and I just think it's important you can't you can't expect people to be you know breaking the cycle or doing things out of the realm if there is an opportunity or pathways in order for them to to be better and create better opportunities for themselves or communities. 
Look, thank you so much for speaking to us, both of you. It's so interesting to find out more. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's show. Thank you as well to Lindsay Hooper and Jodie Taylor. Speak to you tomorrow. Sports Social Podcast Network.